Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. Uh, This week is one of your picks. I believe, not to speak for you, but I'm pretty sure this could accurately be described as the first hate read we've ever done. So I guess, yay or nay? And do you want to introduce the topic for us? Um, it's, it's a nay, um... I think we've agreed it's not as bad as it could have been with the absolutely insane premise. But this is Sin's Past, the Amazing Spider-Man story from issue 509 to issue 514. Um, That's in the second volume. I think it'd be if you're on like Marvel Limited or something, it's the one that's um, from 1999 uh, because they they rebooted it and then they put the numbers back later uh, for ASM 500. These issues specifically are from 2004. This is still writer J. Michael Straczynski. We talked a little bit about his time on Spider-Man way back in one of our early episodes when we discussed Shafra and spider totems and all of that shit. Um, In terms of the rest of the roll call here, unfortunately, we don't still have John Romita Jr. here. We'll talk about the art, which... Anyone would have an unfortunate time coming after JRJR. But we have Mike Diodato Jr. on the art, as well as the cover art. Joe Pimentel is credited as inker. Avalon Studios is Matt Milla is on colors. We have Corey Petit on letters. Another familiar name. The letterers are the all-stars on the podcast. Because <laughs> there's, at any given time, there's like five people lettering the entirety of Marvel and DC. The number of times we're going to say Richard Stockings and Comicraft on this pod eventually. Unreal. I think we've already done it literally four times. <laughs> but yeah, this is Sin's Past. If you're a particularly heavy american superhero reader there's a decent chance you've at least heard of it not for good reasons this is the story where it's retconned that before she died gwen stacy had babies fathered by the green goblin and then those babies try to kill peter parker yeah it's that that's the general fucking premise but should we just start at the very beginning gwen stacy's secret demon babies Yeah, it's not to get ahead of ourselves. There are going to be some things that I say that are going to sound complimentary and that I think this could have been a lot worse by a different writer, but that does not mean that I think that the story or the basic premise is good because they are not. And the original premise, by the way, so the original idea was these kids were going to be Peter's secret kids that he just didn't know about. And Marvel were like, um, we can't have Spider-Man have two grown children, that's insane. So the solution was, um, what if Gwen Stacy instead, um, fucked her best friend's dad, as our plotline. The man who will eventually brutally murder her. Yeah, which, with the way that the story does, like, a bunch of, like, callbacks and flashbacks, there'll be things to talk about, but I guess for now, should we address the 
opening, which is six pages of Mary Jane at a audition for, I believe it's a theater production. Yeah, it's off-Broadway, which, like, yeah, she's she came from Hollywood back to New York in the course of this run, because she was in Hollywood, she was in a terrible superhero movie called Lobster Man. Sorry, the, the Doc Ock arc set in LA is one of my favorite Spider-Man arcs from this run. Um, unfortunately, as soon as JRJR leaves the book for some reason, everything just starts sliding into the crapper. I don't blame Straczynski for anything beyond this story. After this, I'd say it's editorial, because Spidey joins the Avengers, so all the stories have to be about that, and then Civil War happens, and none of that's his fault, and then you gotta do one more day. Anyway, this is his fault, and this is Mary Jane learning how to act by telling the truth. It's basically just like the director, or at least like head casting guy, I think he is just straight up the director for the production. Essentially, she's doing her audition, it's going poorly, and before she can leave, the guy goes up and he's just like, you know, there's a difference between doing something and trying to do something. Like when you're at the club and you see a guy who's nervous and he's in his head and he's going through the moves in his head, but you look at the other guy and he's just dancing. Don't try to act. Just act. Tell the truth. Acting is a very hard type of art to portray in comics. I guess I'll have to to make you read some acting manga at some point, because that's actually a thing that exists and can be good. But here it's just really awkward, and we're just... We get like this... The difference now is she's sitting down. Yeah, she's sitting down. We get a couple silent panels before she starts to like symbolize her sort of reorienting her headspace. And we just get all these close-ups on her face as she redelivers the same lines and we're meant to take it that this time she didn't try to act she just acted she told the truth the the acting advice this guy gives is literally just the pretty standard advice of like you know how the character's feeling right now imagine a time you felt like that and channel that through your performance and Mary Jane is absolutely blown away by this. She's there's, there's a scene later where she's talking excitedly about this to Peter, and I'm like, I'm sorry, you're saying Mary Jane has been an actor for years, has been in Hollywood movies at this point, and no one has ever brought up this concept to her before? Anyway, <laughs> it stands out because Straczynski normally writes Mary Jane really well, but moving on, because this is no relevance to the ongoing plot whatsoever. Yeah, it's like, she does the audition, she gets the parts, and we get, like, uh, Peter's been waiting in the, like, waiting room outside, and they have an excited, like, hugging each other of being like, you got the part, I got the part, I got the part, you got the part. I like, love the two actors in the corner, who are presumably also auditioning for the same role, who are now just being subjected to this lady coming out and happy crying about getting the role, and screaming about it with her boyfriend. Yeah, or even if it was different roles, just these actors who, you know, may or may not actually get anything, but are just stressed and reading over their lines, and meanwhile listening to this one girl screaming who's probably luckier than they're going to be. I feel like this is a good way point to start talking about the art, because, like, some of these panels, the way, I don't know whether it's Diodata's pencils or whether it's the inking, the inker's choices and how to ink them, but there's a lot of, like, heavy shadows on people's faces, and it looks really fucking weird. 
it's like shadows in a way that doesn't work like you know podcasting audio medium you can't see what we're talking about but essentially we'll get like side profiles of the characters and like one i'm looking at in particular the percentage of peter's face that is in shadow just doesn't make sense and like it doesn't make sense like alongside the mary jane across from him it's like panels aren't always consistent within themselves in terms of a feeling of how the light is hitting or how heavily something's going to be inked. Like, you know, I have nothing against a heavily inked, somber, very black intensive sort of looking page, but it just doesn't feel appropriate or even internally consistent here to me. Also... This isn't a somber page. This is them celebrating that she got the role. And for some reason, Peter's face is, like, half just fully black in shadow. In, like, a, a, it could be, like, it, it would be creepy. Like, it, it feels like it should be, like, a moment when Peter is considering murdering someone or something, you know? Like, if Peter's just so pissed off at a villain, you could do this. Or something like that. Yeah, like, I don't think it's so extreme that it looks outright like a horror thing. But it is incongruous. Um, off mic, we talked about sort of structurally how this feels like the beginning of Marvel starting to push on average like six issue arcs and sort of pad things up in a way where you're constructing it for a trade paperback in a way that like American comic books didn't used to do because, you know, like the modern graphic novel section at Barnes and Noble was not what anyone had in mind when they were creating Amazing Fantasy 15. You know, it simply wasn't in terms of how audiences read comic books and how that relates to the structure. Whereas this feels largely padded throughout, and in a way, the six issues of Mary Jane's audition feels that way. I don't necessarily hate the idea entirely, because I appreciate giving page time to Mary Jane, you know, like, I appreciate giving the romance character time to be on panel doing something other than getting kidnapped, but the actual execution, like we've been saying, is just a really awkward audition that then leads into really awkwardly inked pages that don't feel tonally appropriate. Yeah, and it, it's also sort of, there's a lot of plot to get to, and it's weird how long it takes for the thing that we spoiled at the beginning of the podcast as to that these are Gwen Stacy's kids and where they came from and all that it takes so long to get to. Like, it's fully like halfway through this before you find out what is actually happening and why we should care. And then the latter half is like comparatively more sped through too, which just contributes to the pacing feeling a bit wonky. Yeah. In terms of the pacing, I'd say this is the start of the bendicification specifically like i feel like at this point this is 2004 yeah this is 2004 ultimate spider-man is coming out and ultimate spider-man is a very like six issue six issue arc we'll do like a whole issue that is just mary jane and peter having a conversation for the entire issue kind of book and this definitely feels like straczynski is having to try and pad this out yeah and like we talked a lot about in the Shafra episode, I believe it was episode four. It was like really early in the show. Yeah, it was like my second pick. 
Yeah, like when we did a Straczynski Spider-Man story before. This man has a lot of talent for writing and then writing comics and then writing comics about Spider-Man. You know, like when it was him and J.R.J.R., this book fucking slapped. That was a three-issue arc where each issue still stood on its own enough that you could have just picked that one up. So it is very different here where we have something that is pretty clearly meant to just be put in a book later down the line. Yeah. I suppose moving forward a little bit after the audition and the happy celebration, we zoom forward a little bit to uh, Peter and MJ are hanging out with Aunt May. Everyone's having a nice meal together. For context, Aunt May knows that Peter is Spider-Man at this point. This is like that brief, beautiful moment where she knew and she was dealing with it and it was fine and it was better that she knew and it's weird that he hasn't told her again after she forgot after one more day literally the best thing that's ever been done of the character meaning when she knew not one more day it's like this and her one death in the 90s yeah tell her or killer pick one. Oh god pick one marvel <laughs> fucking spider-man retcons anywho as they're having breakfast um the mailman comes by aunt may is flipping through the mail and then, you know, just very seriously, is like, Peter, you need to see this. And hands him an envelope that is addressed. It's like addressed to Peter Parker, but like through May Parker's address. And the sender is from Gwen Stacy, who was one of Peter's old girlfriends was his primary love interest, I would say, before Mary Jane, and who at this point has been dead in real time for, what, about 30 years? Yeah, it was like 74 or something. The blonde one, the not MJ. I think Emma Stone plays her. Yeah, Emma Stone. Um, Imagine Emma Stone's character in the Amazing Spider-Man movies, but like, Looks the same, totally different personality, and also she never knew Peter was Spider-Man. She never found out. Um, so, for context, for this episode, I read pretty much every single appearance of Gwen Stacy prior to her death. From ASM 31 all the way through to ASM 121 where she dies. And I took note of... Everything that happens with her and Peter and Norman Osborne and Harry Osborne in that time. This letter is addressed from Paris. She never went to fucking Paris. I cannot find where she went to Paris. I read everything. They talk about Paris several times in this. She just never went to Paris. There's no point when that would have happened. And, like, it's weird because she went to London. And I think when they're talking about Paris in this arc, they're actually talking about that time she went to London. But it was London. And just in terms of, like, timing and stuff, it's like, I assume there's no point where the sense of time between stories is so large that it would make sense to have simply happened off-panel, right? And that would just be weird of, like, it's an awkward thing to try and shoehorn in, you know, the way that, honestly, quite frequently, Marvel books will go back and try to shoehorn in things like x-men the hidden years here's what happened before giant size x-men well see at least there there's a publishing gap the weirdness with this is we're gonna try and establish that a character was like pregnant for an ex like that's that's visible for what six months at least 
I wonder if we should hold off on, like, the logistics of the pregnancy until we get to the, like, weird aging stuff before we dive in too much. Yes. Yes. Although, I guess, listeners who don't know, really all you need to know about Gwen Stacy's death going into this is she was Peter's girlfriend, and she died as a result of a battle between Peter and Green Goblin, Norman Osborn, in which, essentially, Norman threw her off of a bridge— and Spider-Man tried to save her with his webbing, but there's like a sound effect as it hits her that sort of leaves the ambiguity of did she die through the fall or was his webbing with just like the force of it, did he actually accidentally break her neck? It's basically just a tragic thing. He 100% broke her neck. Yeah. Yeah. It is probably the most famous fridging in comics. Yeah, unless you... Count, count. One involving an actual fridge yeah like unless you just say the one that created the term it's in terms of just like most famous killing off of a female romantic lead for man feelings yeah i i don't think anything else compares and like it's a good story but gwen is unconscious throughout the whole fight and never finds out that peter was spider-man and like it would almost be worth it if she found out and got to react for five seconds before she dies it's fine. It was the 70s. It was a good story. Gwen dying was actually a very good thing for the Spider-Man franchise overall because she was becoming exhausting by the end. There's a reason they killed the character off. It's fine. Um, so the letter is basically an extended entire page of Gwen being worried about telling Peter something. And that's literally it. It's literally... I was just surprised when we had to separate because you had to go on one of your missions for the bugle so quickly. And yeah, it's just a lot of, I really need to talk to you. I'm sending it to your aunt to make sure you'll get it. I would have sent it to you, but I don't have an address for you of where you're going. And I'm just so worried. And it's all very incomplete. And Peter's just like, well, this doesn't make sense. This is incomplete. This is clearly not even the full letter. He's and like, there is a second page of this letter that is missing that is the actual point of the fucking letter. What the hell? Yeah, and who's sending this to me now and why? And we get a little bit... One thing I will say, again, this is not a good story. But in terms of things that I at least like conceptually... We get a scene of just, like, MJ checking in on Peter, and they talk about it a little bit. I like how much page time MJ has. It feels like these characters are actually in a relationship. I'm going to say something positive about the story. This is one of the few really positive things I would say. I really love the way that the complicated feelings about Gwen and MJ and Peter's relationships with both of them are handled in this story. Because Gwen was MJ's friend as well. Like, they very quickly become basically best friends before Gwen dies. And so, like, Peter and MJ basically got together while mourning Gwen. The first time they get together. So, it's like, there's always going to be this weird specter of Gwen over their relationship. And the way it's that is handled in this story, I think, is really, really well done and interesting. And emotionally complex in, like, a very good way. Yeah. Yeah, like, I just... I think I said something akin to this earlier. I just appreciate when the romantic interest, especially with regards to like, you know, this isn't X-Men. The romantic interest is just 
a normal human, no powers. I appreciate when that type of character is allowed time to breathe on the page, you know? It just helps MJ feel like an actual character. And we then get some flashbacks, essentially, of, like, Peter's talking about the past and what's going on during his narration, like, visually on the panel, will be, like, flashbacks to fights he had during that time, you know, including the bridge sequence, of course. Him, like, basically him being like, I guess there wasn't time for Gwen to tell me whatever secret it was, because, like, the timing list doesn't work at all. I will get into this later, but, like, essentially he's blaming his trip to Canada, where he fought the Hulk, and then, like, Harry's relapse on LSD, and then Gwen dying, like, right after that, as to why he doesn't know what's up. Yeah, essentially a lot of... I guess it was during this period where just there was so much going on and we were separate and then barely together before she died and just like, she was so upset and I wish I knew what was going on. And then we get a little bit more as they're talking confirmation with Peter showing MJ just like, look at the postmark on this letter. It's June 23rd, 2004. They sent this today. They sent this truly the day JMS wrote the script or the issue hit newsstands. That panel has aged so bad. You think you'd put, like, his thumb over the back of the year or something? So you just get, like, you're like, okay, plot-wise I know, but I'm not literally dating this comic. Well, honestly, I don't mind things like this, you know? Like, I really don't. I think it's just sort of fun to actually acknowledge time, even if it's not going to age, you know, correctly there's a bit later where peter says the relatively short time since gwen died and i'm like yeah i guess for you it's been like maybe six seven years (laughs) compared to like 28 or something but yeah this is all just establishing again like i've heard of post offices finding and delivering lost stuff but this is ridiculous and also this is not that because the post date is from today and i like this bit here peter says there are some things in my life you don't touch if you want to walk away with your spine intact. Uh, to MJ says, you're one of them, first and foremost and forever. And when he holds up the letter, this is another. Yeah, it's doing the balancing line of like, I think it's going to vary a bit scene by scene. I think most of it's fine, though there's some hiccups later in terms of managing the whole, you know, current relationship with one of the partners talking about, you know, their ex and just a way of acknowledging they were exes and they cared and all that sort of stuff that should be fine. But straight culture is possessive and freakish and horrendous. And therefore, you know, it's that sort of shit. There's a bit later, which I absolutely despise, which we will get to. It's, it's the cover art of the episode. Oh, no. You know exactly what page I'm talking about. Most likely. Oh, no. <laughs> I need to get into that because I'm just like this. It's it's disgusting and it's terrible. And it's honestly, I think it's the worst thing that JMS has written the entire time that he wrote Spider-Man. The thing is, I think that after this story, he's mostly doing his best in bad circumstances. And before this story, it's the best Spider-Man run. Like maybe full stop. And this is that awkward cusp where it has started getting bad, but also he has more blame. I can't put all of this on Casada. I can put a little bit of this on Casada, and that's the fact that it's six issues, but that's about it. And also, if you want to just be like, editorial, I know he's doing great, but come on. 
But anywho, Peter has a monologue just about how great MJ is and yada yada angst as he's sneaking out of bed and he's going in the middle of the night to the cemetery where Gwen is buried and is talking, crying in the rain so that any liquid on the face has the plausible deniability that it's the rain. (laughs) He's basically being like, what was the secret? Like, I would have made it right. I would have fixed things. I loved you. I would have done anything for you. And then his spider sense goes off. There's someone out there. We have, actually, I'm going to compliment the lettering here. The word bubbles without the little line to the speaker, so we don't have any sense of the direction it's coming from over the just the panels of the cemetery we're seeing it, is like a very good, like, Peter can't tell where these voices are even coming from kind of moment. I don't know why he can't, because it is just two people who are out there, but, like, it's an effective lettering trick. Yeah, that's a good point I'm glad you mentioned, of just, like, the Ward Balloon Sans tail adds just a sense of it being disembodied. But, um, yeah, so he gets attacked by two people wearing, like, black purplish cat suits you know like just the skin tight all over thing they have some little harnesses on it's Um, very generic just fully clad and dark clothing they're skin tight so you can tell that one of them is a woman because titties they are very skin tight i the boobs in the story are also a con no one talks enough about how bad all the boobs in the story are Here's one example. There's Mike Diodato books that I have enjoyed in terms of the art. This isn't really one of them. He did some stuff, I think, on Hickman Avengers. He's doing stuff with Hickman right now for Hickman Substack stuff. That looks nice. This just, I don't know, this doesn't work for me. I think my main issue, Diodato is up and down for me and how much I like it. And the examples of Diodato art that I always like the most heavily relate to how it's being inked and colored and i think my favorite work he's ever done was on new avengers where the coloring was very bright and poppy and it just sort of matched a sense of fun action basically just not angsty whenever i see diodato's art with just really heavy inking like we talked about the awkward faces earlier and just like a dark color palette for just like serious suspense and brooding it's just like this isn't what i go to the style of line art for it just really doesn't gel for me i don't think it brings out his best yeah we have like another weird example of the heavy inking messing with faces i think i think a lot of this is in the inking and like having all the heavy blacks because it's a dark serious somber story that doesn't fit yeah question if this was the exact same plot Nothing changed, all the same dialogue, everything, except it was drawn by JRJR. How much more would we like it? I think we definitely would like it more, but I don't think it would save it because it's really the plot, you know, the central conceit. And we'll, you know, we'll get more into it when we get to the actual reveals and stuff. But the conceit is just too sexist and bad that it, for it to have ever been good. But you know, it certainly would be better to be looking at JRJR, but that's just such an unfair comparison to put almost anyone up against. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Um, So, last page of the first issue, Peter gets away from them by, like, 
jumping. He's by the way, he's not in his Spidey suit for this. He's he's as Peter Parker, and he's just had like a superhero fight with these people, and he's jumped out of the cemetery over the fence and grabbed onto the side of a truck using his like sticky fingers, and he's like, oh, made it. Hopefully they didn't see that, and I'm like, okay, Pete. Hopefully they missed it. And what was really hard to see in this time at night where it's clearly not actually all that dark. Like, you know, sunset, but it's not that dark. It's not dead black at night. I think it's dawn at this point, yeah. Yeah, and also, I just jumped on the back of the truck, which is the only moving vehicle we have seen in this scene. Truly conspicuous. Um, oddly enough, they did see, and so the, 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 the guy one is like, did you see? And then the woman likes, woman one is, yes, it explains a lot, doesn't it? And back to the, the guy one. Yeah, yeah, it does. But as far as I'm concerned, it just gives us one more reason to kill him. And like I've always said, if you're going to kill a man, you should have all the reasons you can get. And he pulls off his little, like, purplish-blackish mask or whatever, and underneath the mask, he looks like a dude. We have a little face reveal here, and that face is a face. A dude who, judging by the coloration mixed with the inking, is either a brunette, or maybe he's a ginger and it's really shadowy, but probably just a brunette white dude with half of his face encased in shadow. Just why? Why in universe would he do it? He wouldn't. And then just why show us? There's no point. So... We are for the for the we are looking at these comics in context for the context of this this episode. We're not going to get into the Nick Spencer retcons. However, I will say, per the Nick Spencer retcons of this, this guy should look exactly like Harry Osborn, and he doesn't have the cornrows, so he doesn't. I can't go on a tangent about how horrible Harry Osborn's hair is. Oh, but we have to because we're going to see Norman, and Norman in this series is truly horrifying. We'll get to it, unfortunately. We'll get to it, we'll get to it, we'll get to it. Okay, so moving moving on. Um, issue two of this... I'm just. I'm gonna just say issue two, screw it. Yeah, it's part two. six issues. It's got a part we two We said the exact issue numbers earlier. Issue two of the series. We have an entire page of the fight that we just saw last issue. <laughs> Truly giving, watching Naruto and... The first five minutes or the last five minutes of the last episode. It is not, it's not necessary. A full shot of the letter again. Yeah, Peter, once again, looking over the letter in his hands, which I guess... You could start this issue on page three of the issue. Yeah, I'm almost like, is Straczynski trying to awkwardly do the thing of making sure, like... You could pick up any issue and follow it. He did a good job at this on the Shafra arc. He's done that really well before. Yeah, as is, this just is not giving. But MJ walks in. Um, She's saying, have you looked at the back of the letter? Did you really look? Touch it? And essentially they just realize, oh yeah, this is not the complete thing. There would have been another page. Why don't we go do the Criminal Mind CSI, NCIS thing, where we take it to the police scientists, and they magically are going to rub some charcoal on it and get an exact match of exactly the imprint on the back of this paper from the other page. 
yeah, well, well like, because she would have written the next page on top of this page, because that's what MJ does, and MJ's like, I'm sure she probably did it like this, like, give this a go, you can find out what it says. Um, the thing I like about this scene is Mary Jane applies makeup to Peter to cover up all of his bruises from the fight the night before, because even though Aunt May knows about him being Spider-Man now, they don't want her to worry. Yeah, which, again, I just like the continued dynamic of Mary Jane as a character who is actually here interacting and dealing with everything like Peter is. Aunt May doesn't get to do, like, a lot in this story, but at least she's here, I suppose. She's here, she, just her knowing about Peter at this point just adds so much agency to that character, and also the fact that she isn't dying every five minutes. Like, the number of times she just keels over in the older comics is hilarious. It's like every three issues Aunt May's like, oh no, I got a little stressed today. Aunt May's on the Krakoan drugs now, she's fine, she's good, but (laughs) (laughs) she got them early. They they did Spider-Man a solid. He fought with the X-Men a couple times. And yeah, I'm a beast that one time. Yeah, but anyway, Peter gets more menacing mail of photographs of ones of Aunt May with someone. Mary Jane is with someone else and another one. And the faces have been omitted. And then he just has to awkwardly ask the other two questions without trying to explicitly tell them Oh yeah, someone's trying to kill you and they fully are threatening me by being like, we know who you love. So I just realized something. Yeah. Okay, so it's established later that uh, Sarah, the girl, looks exactly like Gwen Stacy. Yeah. There's a big face reveal. It's one of the covers. So if she was the one interacting with Aunt May, I would buy that Aunt May doesn't go, wow, you look exactly like my nephew's dead girlfriend from seven years ago. But she's interacting with Mary Jane in this photo. And I'm like, did Mary Jane not do a triple take seeing a woman who looks like a clone of her best friend? Her dead best friend? It's like the Sorry, best... Sorry, these two plot points, I just realized that it's so weird. The best thing I can possibly come up with is to be like, did they do really heavy makeup and like just... A wig? Yeah, were they really conscious about it of how they approached? Because like a when he questions, if I change my hair color. I'm a different person. Basically, because like when Peter asked them, like, did someone help you of such and such, and then they can't really remember anything super identifying about the people. But even then, it would probably make more sense to have the Gwen clone at least talk to Aunt May, who would have known her less, even if you were doing makeup, because... Aunt May met Gwen, like, three times. Mary Jane and Gwen hung out all the fucking time. Yeah, but you have these just very awkwardly blacked-out faces on these photographs. Oh, and also there's a sticky note in the letter that just says, We can kill them whenever we want. And Peter's just dealing with all this at the breakfast table, trying not to worry them. Clearly, these two kids are the good guys in this situation. The way that they think that this is the right way to go about this, I'm like, even if the lies that you've been told that Peter is, like, the shitty dad who abandoned you, and then, like, murdered your mother, even assuming that, the idea of killing Aunt May or Mary Jane over that is completely insane. Yeah. 
that good old Osborne blood. Um, so Peter goes to a detective friend of his who's from earlier in the run. They have like a fun dynamic. Like I like th- this guy doesn't like vigilantes, but he does like he'll help Spider-Man out anyway because he's like, well, yeah, but you're still like doing decent stuff. This relationship is clearly meant to build to something, like, either where they had to fight each other or where this guy was, like, the friend of the Force during a Spider-Man storyline. There's flash-forwards and Amazing Spider-Man. It never happens. I, I suppose I remember there's no, like, conclusion to this, like, back and forth between the two of them. I think it gets derailed by Civil War happening. Basically, he agrees to not look at the front of the letter like Spider-Man's webbed it to a piece of steel, but to get the impressions from the back of the letter so that Peter can, like, try and keep his secret identity. And again, like, building up stuff, the guy's like, oh, take one strand of the webbing and do a complete chemical analysis, just in case. And I'm like, see, there's, like, there's a story that Straczynski has in mind. Yeah, it's like, the police stuff throughout the story largely feels kind of awkward because it, again, just, like, feels disembodied and even in the context of the story, like, there could have been a bit more, but there isn't, even though the pacing is so wonky and things that don't feel like they need all the page time they get, get that page time. But anyway, we zip to just a lot of Spider-Man, like, calling around, being like, MJ, are you okay? As he's going about his day, he's just, like, trying to keep tabs on her and Aunt May to make sure that um, she's safe. And at one point, when he tries to call Aunt May... It doesn't ring on Aunt May's end. Like, basically, they've diverted his phone call to them. And they just do the threatening, be at this place in 10 minutes, or she's gonna get it. Because he's assuming that he actually made it through to, yeah. So he's, you know, Aunt May is just sitting on the couch knitting, but Spider-Man is swinging across town trying desperately to save her. He breaks into, like, the abandoned warehouse place thingy to try and, like, save her. And they've got a dummy stuck onto a chair with a little bomb on it, and the bomb goes off right in his fucking face. There's a pretty soft- I like this page, actually. This is a very nice explosion page. I honestly don't care for it. I don't know. It's like, again, like, the inking and the coloration in this book just don't feel properly aligned to me. And, like, what Diodato's doing, it's like, I don't know, something about this posing just feels too unnatural for what's happening to him to me. Oh, see, I thought, I, I like the, the way that his head is thrown back from, like, the force of the explosion, and then the heavy shadows on the torso finally make sense because there's an explosion behind him. Yeah, like, it's not terrible, but it also, again, just feels awkward of just, I don't know, just the general pacing choices of, like, I get the instinct to go, there's an explosion, there's a point for just a full splash page, but when I look of just how pages are used in the story in general, I'm just like, it's all just awkward. Yeah, the whole six issue thing doesn't really fit. I don't, I don't think it fits Straczynski's style. Because, like, Bendis has made it work. Like, it just depends on the writer, I think, and how they write it. And just, like, what amount of pages make sense of their personal pacing of a story of, like, Straczynski works largely in, like, three to four and doesn't need to extend it that much yeah i mean like the shafra arc's great it's three issues most of the straczynski stuff was three issue arcs i think pretty much but the the kids show up again so now now they're purpley outfits of all black but it's the same outfits other than that it's just they're completely colored differently so i guess they got some new ones that are like black leather rather than 
purple fabric. I don't know. Yeah. So yeah, um, Gabriel, who is his name is is established here, is really pissed and is just trying to beat the shit out of Peter. And Sarah is a lot calmer. Yeah, just her being like, it's not the time to kill him yet. As Gabriel's just punching the shit out of him. They don't, like, introduce themselves to Spider-Man. It's just, like, they address each other by name, so they're not, like, trying to hide names, and really they'd have no reason to since he doesn't know who they are, and also those are just names. But he still beats him up a bit, and it's just like, you'll find out what you did, and you'll see why you deserve for us to fucking kill you. And then they just leave they just walk away they just led him here to beat him up but not finish the job they're just gonna leave it's it's the um well see they needed it to be six issues <laughs> yeah there's there's just no reason for how this goes this this that whole thing established nothing aside from the guy's name was gabriel you could have cut all of that and just have the line about his name being gabriel in the first fight yeah it it contributed literally nothing other than padding out. And Peter's unconscious again, and he goes into a flashback, which, here we go. Here we go. Okay, this is where my research starts to come in. This interaction never happened. It did not happen. I read the issues they are referencing, and this scene almost exists, but it doesn't. This isn't the dialogue they used. This isn't... There's literally this pat. There's one panel here where, okay, so it's a flashback to the time very shortly before Gwen's death, and by very shortly, I mean approximately two hours before Gwen's death. Um, where Harry, Gwen, and Mary Jane are visiting Harry, who is out of his mind on a very very bad LSD trip, and they're insisting that his dad take him to the hospital, but Norman is. A, a prick, and B, slowly sliding back into being the Green Goblin again and doesn't want to get the scandal because his business is already floundering. So he doesn't want people to know about Harry and Harry's drug problems. Um, Peter has flown back from Canada and gone straight to this apartment. Like, like the thing about this scene, it, for context, Peter flies back from Canada, goes straight to see... Gwen and Mary Jane and Harry, because he knows that they're all there when he gets back. Gwen, when she gets home after this, after seeing Harry, when Peter's come back from Canada, is grabbed by Norman and taken to the bridge and murdered. So this is the one time that this scene could have happened, and this, it's, it's not this one. It's not the one that's in since past. It's just not this scene. They have some stuff on the sidewalk that I'm like, theoretically could have happened, but the scenes that happen inside, uh, it, it's literally just not what happened. I don't know. It's weird. I feel like they've referenced the issue numbers earlier. I'm like, if you're going to do a big old retcon, you would do the reading. And it's weird that they didn't because these are very famous comics and they're very accessible comics. And I'm like, you have this absolutely insane, like monstrously complex retcon that you're trying to do to these characters. You think you would try and make it fit as well as you could in every little detail so it becomes like a this is the thing that was going on that you didn't notice when you read those books but it yeah also i hate the way these pages are colored yeah for reference listeners these pages are doing sepia toned yeah it's like all black outline heavy sepia tone you know the sort of 
you know, standard trick in comics of, like, darkening the coloration to indicate a flashback. And, like, it does communicate flashback, but it's also just boring to look at. It's, like, you can do this sort of thing without just looking like the dullest filter imaginable. You know, it's, like, this isn't the ugliest thing I've ever seen, but it's just fucking boring. It's just really flat and doesn't contribute to any sense of like amping me up of what's going on you know like these past events what am i gonna learn what are we missing what's between the cracks and the panels of what happened i'm just looking at it and visually i'm bored what i would have done is i would have instead of doing this i would have done flat colors that might have been a better choice yeah that would have communicated the past in a very direct way and that it will visually look more like the comics that this is supposed to be set in but it would also be, I think, still somber enough. But this is still that very gradient, heavy, early 2000s coloring that I generally don't like anyway. And yeah, yeah. The, the gist of the scene is they're upset because Norman doesn't want Harry to go to the hospital. Gwen is like, no, don't talk to Norman. It's not going to do any good. We just need to go somewhere. Mary Jane, and this this is the thing that definitely just didn't happen because... In the comic, they all three are shown leaving the building together in the original story where this scene happens. And in this scene, Gwen goes back for her bag. Like, that, that is just wrong. And, like, I'm sorry to hop on about this because I just read it. <laughs> the I... sort of thing that would just be very awkward to try and shoehorn in and just... They it's just not seen... what you would want to do. They couldn't have seen Harry twice. And, like, a lot of the story depends on how little interaction Peter and Gwen got to have during this time period and they have this is either a second time they all went to see harry in his lsd flashback which doesn't actually have time to exist but whatever or i guess the original comic got it wrong i don't know what this is yeah because we know that we have a second flashback later that corroborates this and not the original comics this isn't even peter remembering things wrong i don't know for me personally it's like I'm not even all that invested in the specifics of the retcon time alignment because I'm just more morally offended by the sexism stuff that we'll get to into in a bit. But if you're going to do this sort of thing of you're doing a retcon and, you know, there's arguments of whatever in terms of how beholden you want to be to continuity. But if you're doing the retcon in a way where you're pretty directly referencing past scenes then you have to fucking do it and pay attention because you've set that expectation for yourself so you can't you know do these entire sepia toned pages of these past events and then have it not gel so big retcons that are fun Moira mctaggart was secretly a mutant all along is a great retcon makes a lot of previous stories actually more interesting because you read them and you're like, oh, wow, that's a funny thing for her to be saying and, like, actually makes weirdly more sense now. This doesn't. The idea that Gwen Stacy somehow hid an entire pregnancy at, at some point during the 90 issues where she was a major character in ongoing Spider-Man comics makes no goddamn sense on any level. And it's also not fun to try and figure out when she did that because i have been trying to figure out when she did that and i did not enjoy it it's not good it's like 
I guess to just briefly, it's like, I shouldn't have to do this, I suppose. But if I was going to give the sort of wiggle room of like, you know, it is medically possible. There are occasions, you know, where people will be pregnant and it'll be like a lot less visually showy than it is in most cases for periods of time. And then add in, oh, this trip out of the country that Gwen went on where she was away from the rest of the cast. And then they explicitly say, because of Norman's mutant goblin genes, that the pregnancy was only seven months and not nine because it was accelerated. If you have to add on all of those layers and justifications to try to explain it, it's because it's not making sense and it's just not something worth doing or worth trying to make sense. You know, it's like, I had to add on free qualifiers for the justifications to explain the hidden pregnancy. It's just... It was with twins. With twins. She had two of them. That would show. It's just... There are just choices made here that just did not need to be made. By which I mean this story existing in any form. So we have a little scene where Gwen is like reassuring that Peter loves her. And he's like, yeah, of course. Don't be silly. It's like, she's like, would you love me no matter what I told you, no matter what may happen between us? And he's like, yeah, yeah. And then Mary Jane comes out from after getting her bag and kind of interrupts him a little bit. And Gwen is not quite ready to tell him, clearly. And then the very next panel is Norman knocking her off the bridge. This is, like, the third or fourth time we have seen, uh, like, direct, like, Gwen falling off the bridge panel in this book. Yeah. And, like, one of the last things she says before the shift is just, like, there's time. There's always time. And then the whole just, there wasn't time, because, you know... Two hours later. The bridge. And... Spider-Man starts to come to a little bit from being knocked the fuck out. And he goes to meet up with the detective who brings him the results of the lab analysis where it's not a complete page of the letter because some parts are missing, but enough is visible to just be very convenient for the amount of drama that we're introducing to the reader at this pace. There is a plot relevant number of words available that they were able to figure out. I'm sorry, Peter, space, months ago, space, should have told you after I found out, space, couldn't, space, I was pregnant, space, had to get away, decide what to, space, you were in Canada, and space, the babies come a month early, I have two children, Peter, a boy and a girl, Gabriel and Sarah. And then just spidey looking distraught and silhouette on this building top where he met the detective i mean i get being really upset that it's gwen kids that were trying to kill him that's upsetting that's bad news to have it is but I just... my god this is just it's not good it's just conceptually not good um we're gonna be moving into the third issue of the arc now picks up right with just I assume he's left the cop by now. He's back on another rooftop just crying and just... His favorite pastime right now. Yeah, and he just goes over the things that plot-wise don't make sense in his head in the narration of being like, even if she had kids, they wouldn't have aged enough to. And then he just has to be like, unless they weren't born normal kids to begin with, unless. 
So it's just a lot of telling us without using all the words of just, it wouldn't make sense timeline-wise for her children to be either full-grown adults or at least, like, they've got to be at least teenagers. They look at least, like, probably like adults, but, like, these are not kid kids. They look like they're 20. Yeah, exactly. And he's just like, unless something was weird. And, you know, we're going to find out something was weird. They couldn't have aged that much in <coughs> years. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, the, he... he Yeah, he goes to see Mary Jane, and he's, like, clearly distraught, but also trying to fake being happy he's joking about making her breakfast and she's like you only ever make breakfast because you can't like stick around any more of the morning and he's like anyway i'm gonna make breakfast yeah and while he's there um once he's left the room to make breakfast mary jane examines the ceiling of the room where he has i guess he thought either that this would somehow be secretive enough or just didn't think she would look just left a gigantic webbed up package on the ceiling and in reaction i guess he like did it before she like pretended to be waking up because like it was that whole thing of she knows he's coming in but she pretends to be asleep until he dresses her but she's like looking up at the webbing and she says i have to respect his secrets because that's what i do i keep people's secrets and just a whole little thing from her about just like the give and take of wanting to keep secrets but also wanting to protect him when he's trying to protect her yada yada and just this theme of mary jane as a confidant which would you believe will come up again later in a way i don't like um maybe the web so there was that period in the 90s where he slept on the ceiling of the living room and insisted everyone called him the spider maybe theater was just like sleeping on the using his webs to sleep on the roof again because he's he's what he does when he gets really sad like when aunt may was sick in the 90s right before the clone saga he's just like i'm not peter parker i'm the spider well like the webbing here is specifically like him leaving some of those like papers behind that mj's gonna take down and read later once he's gone oh you know, it's just unclear what it is because it is white paper on a white ceiling so it just sort of looks like some webs <laughs> the visual presentation of it's not ideal yeah no, you're right you're right that is what that is okay but yeah peter goes back to the cemetery he's doing the classic i have to dig you up to know if you're truly there he sticks a big tube down to get the dna he doesn't exhume her entirely he just pierces her corpse with a spear in order to get some genetic material. Yeah, I guess that is technically what's happening, although it's giving, like, that cliche. Oh, it's awkward, it's weird. I, I honestly feel like it's worse to stab the corpse than to just fucking pull the corpse out and just, like, scrape a fingernail. But anyway. It, it's very weird. Anyway, Gabriel's watching on from a distance. Looking... Like a different man. He looks, again, he looks different than he did earlier, actually. He doesn't look like the same guy that he did in his unmasking scene. Again, he doesn't, he doesn't have the correct hair for who his actual dad is. Like, this is just fundamentally wrong. Listeners, Harry and Norman Osborn, I don't know if there's any interviews describing why. Ginger cornrows. These are white, red-haired men who... The way that their hair is drawn in those classic comics, 
I guess maybe it's meant to represent like a wavy texture or something. Having gone back to the original stuff with Ditko, Ditko is clearly attempting to draw a like wavy 40s style, really like posh haircut to get across how rich these men are. But that's like a difficult thing to get across and it does wind up looking a little bit like cornrows. And then when John Romita Sr. takes over, it's it's it, it just becomes cornrows. It's just what the hair winds up just being. Because it's just now a way you draw Osborne hair, and that is cornrows. Just these really unfortunate, ugly-looking white men with their apparent cornrows. Like, they're unintentional cornrows. Yeah. Like, the intention was clearly originally wavy, like sleek wavy shiny hair with like and that was the but you know coloring limitations at the time didn't make that come across so well and then artists change over just like replicating the look makes it look like cornrows and now here we are all the osbournes have cornrows it's a genetic trait if you are an osborne you have cornrows you have weird ginger cornrows and so does your corpse sorry there's an amazing panel from one of the recent spider-man comics of a dead harry osborne body that still has his cornrows it is a full skeleton with cornrows my god i guess listeners like i guess just for clarity you know like it doesn't realistically look like actual cornrows it's just like trying to search for the best way to describe what this awkwardly drawn hair looks like but yeah anyway at this point we're gonna move back for Mary Jane's awkward acting stuff again, where this time it feels even more disembodied than the first time, where if like the first scene, it could have been just like, you know, we're opening up with just checking in on how MJ's career is doing and what that means in terms of just MJ and Peter together. Here we get a scene of MJ at just an awkward practice for the play and nothing else comes of it. I don't know if more comes out in future issues, but everything about this scene could have been cut. It's just like a bunch of the other actors thinking she's stuck up and yada yada and it does nothing. Yeah. Anyway, she goes back home and she gets the papers from the web, which now I'm just like, oh yeah, duh. I read this again last night and I just completely blanked on what that paper was. Um, So Peter is in a lab that I guess he broke into... I don't, I, why wouldn't he just go see the Fantastic Four? Like, Reed would do this, and Reed would be able to do it in, like, a heartbeat. And Reed would also probably be able to figure out who the dad is, because the thing is, Peter doesn't know who the dad is, because as we are about to find out pretty soon, Peter and Gwen apparently never had sex, which I call bullshit, but apparently they never had sex, and that, that's just a fact now. Okay. It's, I don't know, it's the sort of thing where it's like, I wouldn't theoretically be that, like, you know, like, I'm not upset about it, even if, you know, whatever, like, you could read the relationship as one where, like, it would have been likely or something. Like, the main problem with it is just that it feels, like, editorially puritanical, you know? Like, it doesn't feel, like, just like, oh, you know, sometimes couples don't have sex, you know? Like, not literally all teenagers are fucking, you know, like, that would be fine, but it's because it's so obviously that we're not going to open the door to ever even imagine that these could be Peter's kids or that he had premarital sex. Like, that's the problem if it just feels 
so cowardly from especially from pre-Disney early 2000s Marvel where we had a George W. Bush character in every third book and we were publishing The Ultimates and Emma Frost was doing cocaine and getting nose jobs. But Spider-Man is our flagship character and he can't have been having sex. Um, the thing about this is it does mean I cannot I can canonically figure out what issue number Spider-Man lost his virginity in. Because he first sleeps with Mary Jane at the end of the first Clone Saga. And this is like, I think, actually been referenced in comic, but it's also very clearly what's about to happen on the page. And that's not long after Gwen's death. It's right after Gwen's clone has shown up. So, like, there we go, I guess. It's weird. It's weird, and there's also, like, scenes between Peter and Gwen... Having read her entire backlog of appearances for this, yeah, no, there's, like, they go on dates to her house that no one else is living in for dinner, and we cut to the outside, and there's a big Spider-Man logo, like, over, like, the silhouette of the city, and I'm just like, okay, that's the fade to black. You just did a fade to black. Again, did you read these? It just feels unrealistic to me for two college students who have no reason not to who are planning on getting married to just have never had sex. In, like, a weird way, I'm like, okay, this makes Peter feel odder now to me. It reads just like puritanical, like puritanical mandate, yeah. And he's not like that? It's weird. But anywho, he's doing the DNA testing, and Sarah comes in to talk to him, sans Gabriel, a little bit, and basically... She's less immediately bloodthirsty than her brother is. She essentially tells Peter that Gabriel wants to prolong it and to torture him and kill everyone he loves, and that this is Sarah's chance that she's giving him to just let it be over with because she just wants it to be over with. So will he just let her shoot him? Which he does not. Yep, he pulls her mask off, and she looks exactly like Gwen Stacy. And also... She's also wearing Gwen's headband. Truly, underneath of the mask has so the headband. Yeah, so we don't mistake that it could just be any blonde. Which, again, whatever. But she has to wear the classic Gwen headband. I really don't like this face. There's something about... I guess it's the mishmash in amounts of detail. Specifically in... There's, like, no definition to most of her facial structure that isn't just a matter of the colorist shading it in. Like, in terms of line art, there's almost no, like, bone structure. But then the lips have so many little lines on them of, like, fucking chapped-looking lips that I'm like, why are your lips so detailed when the rest of the face has, like, all the detail of a fucking plastic doll? These are the famous Gwen Stacy lip wrinkles. Are you fucking with me? Yes. <laughs> I did not read all of them, so I would not know. Uh, it's absolutely fine. I, that level of research was complete. Like, because here's the thing: my conclusion before I did all this research was I don't think this retcon fits with the way things happened. And my conclusion after all of this research is just, yeah, no, this retcon doesn't make any sense. Still, <laughs> I'm like, but that's not what happened. It just doesn't work. Um, Sarah ends up leaving. Gabriel's not happy that she acted on her own, but 
Yeah, he's just, they go over what happened. He's like, you looked real familiar to him, didn't you? She's just like, yeah. Um, Gabriel is still under the impression that Peter was testing the DNA to confirm that... He's the dad. Yeah. What Gabriel and Sarah have grown up believing is that Peter is their dad who killed their mom and abandoned them. Well, they didn't know he was Spider-Man. So, like, Norman, who raised them secretly, told them that Peter was their dad and that Spider-Man killed their mom and was just waiting for them to figure out the connection. As opposed to just making the bridge himself, just prolong it a little bit more for the six-issue arc. But, yeah, now they know, so they just... Peter slash Spider-Man, they basically think ruined their lives. Um, so Peter goes back to uh, see Mary Jane. We're heading into the thing I hate most in this story. Basically, uh, Mary Jane's like, I read it. I know I shouldn't have, but I did. And I know who they are now. Because um, she's got, like, the paper. She she knows it's Gwen's kids. And Peter's just like, you have to believe me. They're not my kids. Gwen and I never fucked. He doesn't say that. That's That's what he's... It's fine. But it's clear what they're saying with the dot dot dots and the yada yada. Like, we there's can't no... even say I never had sex with Gwen. I okay. We only did hand stuff, Mary Jane. I don't know how this happened. Actually, that I more could... like we only did anal, Mary Jane. <laughs> but but anyway, uh, MJ interrupts some. Is just like you don't have to convince me. I know you're telling the truth because I know who the real father of Gwen Stacy's children is. In an awkwardly illuminated splash page that's the end of the issue before we're then going to go to part five? Is this part five or part four? This is part four. Oh, God damn it. We're halfway through. Okay. Here we go. This is the worst issue by far. Yeah. Let's call us a bathroom break. We're halfway through. We'll be back. Alright, we are back. We are halfway through. This is going to be Amazing Spider-Man 512, uh, Sins Past Part 4. This is... The issue is mainly notable for the opening conversation of Peter being like, What? And I guess I'll quote verbatim, MJ, do you realize, and be real careful here, do you realize what you're saying... Because, Eva, you just found this out, and I can't imagine how, or you've known all this time, and you've never told me. So which is it, MJ? Tell me it was a divine revelation or a hunch. Tell me you got something in the mail, or Ed McMahon came to the door. And tell me it was anything, MJ, and I'll believe it, anything except that you've been keeping this from me. All these years, tell me anything but that, MJ, because I don't think I could stand it. And she's sorry. So we're going to go into a flashback. But the upshot of it is Mary Jane found out about at, at right before. So the flashback we had before that was the wrong flashback about the scene that didn't quite happen that way. And I don't know why you didn't just make it happen the way it did. Um, Mary Jane had come walked in on Gwen and Norman fighting about their kids. So the upshot of this is Mary Jane has known that Gwen had two kids with Norman since before Gwen died. 
and she's kept it a secret from Peter and from everyone else because Gwen begged her to not say anything yet. In the context of both Norman and Gwen are dead, and the kids are presumably in Europe still being cared for by... I I'm going to assume that the children... Gwen never went to Paris, which is what they keep saying here. She went to London. I'm going to assume that, like, she had the kids in London when she was staying with her uncle. So, like, logically, I guess the uncle would have the kids, and that's fine. Like, someone had to be watching the kids when she left Europe to come back to America, right? Like, she gave them to someone. That person's got the kids, it's fine. And since Norman is dead, he can't do anything to the kids, and no one else knows about them. So Gwen keeping the secret, I'm fine with. Yeah, it's like... You know, the comic doesn't give all the full details because, again, even though it's awkwardly padded and has long sequences that don't contribute anything, it still, you know, doesn't address whatever the hell. And that's fine. I don't need a point-by-point point of here's where the kids were, yada yada. This scene doesn't make me read poorly of MJ, frankly, like, partially because the whole story is bad and... A story that's so monumentally made for bad retcons and shit like this, I can't even account for with my impression of a character. Because if you do that, then literally every single character in comics is bad because they're war stories or what you're judging them by. But even just conceptually, you know, I'm not turned off by just the thought of, you know, these two young women in the 70s, keeping secrets among themselves as close friends regarding pregnancy and children especially, and just honoring each other's wishes and that. That's all perfectly fine, you know, but I know there's like the part that you think about in continuity that it reads like the writer isn't thinking about is Norman then coming back to life. The thing that's the problem for me is in the late 90s, it is revealed that Norman Osborn was alive the entire time, hiding out in Europe. He never died, he faked his death. Like, like the thing that killed him still happened, but it didn't actually kill him, and then he killed someone else the same way, and replaced his corpse, and ran to Europe, and lived in Europe for 20 years, doing, like, hilariously complicated plans to fuck with Spider-Man, because that's just his job now. And, like, here in 2004, context of this story... These characters know Norman's alive, right? Yeah. They've known Norman's been alive for a while. They've known that he was in Europe, and they've known that he's been doing, like... Because they know he was behind the Clone Saga, which, like, is about seven layers of, um... You could, you could play Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon with all the Spider-Man villains and Norman Osborn, and it would mostly be like, how involved were they in the Clone Saga? Uh, because he was secretly the evil plotter behind making Spider-Man think that he was a clone rather than his clone being the clone. It's, it's dumb, doesn't matter. Point is, it's weird to me that, like, I will assume, even if she doesn't tell Peter, Mary Jane didn't think when she found out that the evil dad of her best friend's two kids has been secretly alive and, at the very least, on the same continent as those two kids for the past X number of years and didn't call to check up on the kids? That's the part that bothers me. It makes Mary Jane... Like, I I'm just like, they sh the reason Mary Jane knows is to just make it so that there's no doubt that it's Norman Osborn, but, like, it just makes Mary Jane seem really stupid that she didn't immediately, when they found out Norman was alive, go, Oh shit, the kids! 
it truly reads like a matter of implications that what thought out yeah which you know we can't read Straczynski's mind so can't say definitively but just the experience of reading it and tonally what the story is doing in these scenes and stuff it just feels like they didn't actually think that part through and like if we haven't already said Norman Osborn in the present never shows up in the story which is like why I had to ask for clarification because even though he's central to this entire plot and he's alive at this point he's just not here yeah he's just not here I think he's doing Thunderbolts I can't remember I think it's Thunderbolts right now but yeah they go through this teary conversation painful for all of them we get a bit more of the like flashbacks to the awkwardly slash impossibly timed stuff and essentially we get a literal peeking through the door scene of mary jane like watching through with a gap in the door unnoticed as norman and gwen are arguing and mary jane just overhears and finds out that the children are those twos as there's just an argument with a lot of possessive creepy man norman being like the children are mine not yours they're going to be my heirs because my current druggy son is useless and it's just a lot of that it's very well written norman in that he is a creepy awful piece of shit in exactly the ways that norman is like the the annoying thing is every single line of dialogue that comes out of norman osborne's mouth in this series is like spot on like nope that's that's how you write norman in the modern day era to be like a really cool interesting villain it's a shame that the plot is this there's also just really hitting you over the head with some just very direct like you know gwen does the whole i'd die before i let you lay a finger on my children and norman just going you should be careful what you wish for gwen very very careful you know just in case you didn't get it already he's gonna kill gwen and here's more motivation um this is the start of something that it, it's not that horrifying right now but it will be but diodato um he draws norman osborne as tommy lee jones i guess kind of yeah oh no it gets it gets more so later but uh yeah tommy lee jones from from men in black and many many other things for some reason the only one i can think the name of right now is batman forever but you know <laughs> that's literally the only reference i have either yeah no, I mean, there's a million. He's been in good movies, too. But anyway, <laughs> I hope Tommy Lee Jones listens to the podcast. It's like, oh, fuck, why are they just referencing those? <laughs> I have a whole career, guys. Not in my mind, he doesn't. He was Two-Face, and that's it. But yeah, so it, 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 it will be worse later. The, again, the cover art. Look at that. It's Tommy Lee Jones. You'll never be able to unsee it. It's Tommy Lee Jones with weird cornrows. Um... I like the way Gwen's written here. She's, like, very sure about her relationship with Peter and that Peter is going to be, like, able to just go, oh, okay, yeah, they'll be my kids, I'll raise them. And I'm like, I, I think he would have. And I'm like, okay, yeah, no, I believe this. I believe the way that she's acting. It's all just menacing and just... just really heavy-handed, just re-emphasizing, you know, that Gwen died and... Norman Osborn and just selling everything that we've been implying makes it sound more subtle than it is, but just the fruition of those two had kids and 
they had Norman Osborn's special blood, and they will be his special children and his legacy. Yeah. Gwen leaves and will die shortly thereafter. Oh, and Gwen asks um, about the kids being born two months early in France. But they were born fully grown as though they'd done nine months, in, like, as though they'd been in, like, they weren't underdeveloped. Yeah, like, gave birth at seven months, but they were, like, average babies like they would be after a nine-month pregnancy. Yeah, it was just, like, the same, but faster. Yeah. Um, she walks out and sees Mary Jane, and Mary Jane comforts her. And Mary Jane's face, with, like, the, the hand over her mouth, it's just like, oop! Uh, yeah. Oh, um, you see me. You see me seeing you. Standing here in the actually open doorway, I'm like, I came to check on you, and I found out that, um, like, for additional context, Harry Osborne and Gwen Stacy knew each other before they ever met Peter. Like, Peter met Gwen, Harry, and Mary Jane during, like, the first month or two of college. Gwen and Harry were best friends in high school. It is quite literally, I had sex with my best friend's dad. Yeah, that's what happened. Yeah, and then we get, there's just so much that's just so bad here. We have more of, like, the intersperse of Mary Jane talking to Peter and, like, the flashback of Mary Jane talking to Gwen and then, like, going back to the old flashbacks of, like, it's just, like, expanding the scene. When she went back to get her bag, she went to slap Norman Osborn in the face, which, out of any other context, I do love people slapping Norman Osborn in the face, so thank you. Please hit that vile, vile man. But yeah, we get just more confirmation of, you know, basically what you said, of Norman didn't die, he went to Europe, he had all the money... It suddenly makes sense why he went to Europe. And I'm like, yes, it does, Mary Jane. Like, you're referencing the fact that he went to Europe and that they know he went to Europe, but Mary Jane never thought about the kids. It's fine. It's fine. I'm moving on. Yeah, but just he adopted the kids. And we then get in the midst of his upsets. I get being upset that the kids are Normans. That makes sense. This next bit is... It is, it is so, this may be actually, is, is this the worst thing Peter Parker has ever done? Not as a stupid teenager? It's up there, and right now we're looking at the worst singular page of a comic we've ever looked at. But like, we're basically going to get, okay. um, we have Spider-Man, we have Peter asking MJ. He doesn't finish the sentence, but he's basically trying to ask if Gwen lost her virginity to Norman, and then he freaks out and starts breaking everything in the room around him. And in the middle of this, we have flashback panels of, like, Gwen and Norman having sex, and then, like, close-ups on, like, Norman's freaky human face, and then, like, the goblin mask. Stop Sorry, I'm losing it looking at this every time because it is just Tommy Lee Jones. It's it's just a heinous panel. It's like, it's so bad. It's like so much of it's like, it feels gross to look at on multiple levels beyond just like Norman's creepy face, like creepy Tommy Lee Jones face. And the expression here is very creepy. And then like the transition to Goblin face is creepy. But it's like this juxtaposed with like, an elongated panel of 
you know, just like Gwen with her like flowy hair and like her head back as if it's like mid moan, mid sex. And, you know, it's, it's creepy, but it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like an appropriately serious, like, depiction of a moment that's fully meant to be like creepy and unfortunate it's like the storyline is creepy but then like the way in which norman's face is rendered it's like it's also creepy and unsettling but it's in such a way that it undercuts the actual like seriousness of what's happening of just the photo referencing of an actor utterly ruining a page but also it's like the dead-eyed expression. It's like, it just feels like it's not taking the event seriously at a really horrendous time. Like, like juxtaposing, like, the panel of, like, the, like, sexual moaning Gwen panel. It just all feels so incredibly inappropriate and just, like, how am I supposed to take this as a serious character drama if you're gonna show me this shit? Also, Peter, it doesn't fucking matter whether Gwen lost her virginity to Norman Osborn or not, you total dickhead. Yeah, like, that also being the layer on top of it of, like, I've been owning in on, like, the horrendousness of how the flashback page is really grossly depicted. The whole, like... Why is this even a thing he thinks about? I'm like, I would just be horrified that, like, Norman pretty much just clearly groomed this girl. Yeah, and, like, that aspect of it, too, it's like... The comic really does not dive in and acknowledge just... Norman knew Gwen for years. He knew Gwen before he ever knew Peter. She would have been 18, I think, at this point. First year of college. 18, maybe 19. He's in his 40s. And it doesn't take any of that... It really doesn't take any of it seriously at all. Like, it's really the panel, the, like, mid-sex panel of Gwen's face that is really just the type of fire of what's worst about this to me even compared to the like tommy lee jones likeness panel because it's just like this is not how you handle this plot line of as you said this old ass man and this teenager having sex it, it's you know it's just not appropriate and then in the present day we have masculinity heterosexual relationships as possession Peter freaking out about who Gwen lost her virginity to. And, you know, like, we could be having a scene of anguish of how horrible this is because there's no way that this, you know, that this pregnancy, that this intercourse, that this act, that any of it, you know, it could not have possibly been a respectful and meaningly consensual act. It could not have. But we're not having a, like, trauma reaction to a rape, sexual assault sort of thing. We're having a Peter asking who Gwen lost her virginity to, and then breaking all the furniture in the room around him. And then MJ calming him down. And then they all just, they're holding each other, trying to calm down in the room that Peter has broken. We said all that... And I feel like that's only even just scratching the surface of just, I don't even have words for how inappropriate literally every aspect of this feels. And I'm struggling to find, like, I feel like inappropriate isn't even the appropriate sense of word because it's not harsh enough or damning enough. 
like this individual scene i think is the worst part of anything we've ever discussed and i don't think it's going to have much competition anyway this is why this is the first hate read of the podcast everyone yeah like oh i i god it's horrendous and basically the issue just wraps up with peter and mj being like we know they know or like we know what they think they know they're gonna come for us what do we do do we go for them first because basically like that whole thing was more or less the wrap-up to part four i hate it so much just so like the way that peter reacts to it is so fucking wrong i just i and the way that this story seems to be trying to do a thing where it's like gwen wasn't as good as you remember and i'm like i don't know i don't think this is on gwen i think maybe this is on the 40 year old man yeah i guess it probably bears noting just like the way that gwen talks about it the ward rape is never used sexual assault none of those terms are ever used and you know like she says things like i didn't mean for it to happen but he just had this magmatism and stuff like that and a bunch of it's i think it's giving it's giving the, the impression that the creators are trying to depict it as consensual or at least murky when as we've said that's simply not something that could ever be the appropriate healthy way to view what happened between this teenager and this at minimum 40 something year old man who had known her for years and yeah just what you said of just like it feels like it's doing the whole gwen's legacy isn't squeaky clean and it's just like the idea of that is to have had her be raped and impregnated and that somehow is you know meant to be like a blight on her as opposed to just you know like a terrible thing that happened to her which you know even if like this plot line was taken seriously and handled appropriately in universe you know you could still make the argument that on like a meta real world level it's still horrific because again the way that like women and their agency or non-agency here is used because even if we treated the plot line more seriously, it would still exist as, you know, using horrible violence against a woman as a thing to make the male protagonist feel things. You know, like, it wouldn't excuse the plot line, even if we took it more quote-unquote seriously, because the inherent framing of it is sexist. I don't know, I feel like I'm, I'm talking so long that I'm losing my train of thought, oh, but just literally everything it's... about it is bad. And I would also say that taking this narrative and applying it to the original stories is also just, like, wrong, because that's not what they were doing. And you're just adding more horrible things to happen to this character who is mostly famous for the horrible way in which she got murdered. It's literally dumping more violence on a character whose legacy is just to have been a tool for, you know, emotional trauma for the male main character. It's literally just adding more and more onto that. You know, characters are fictional people, they're not real, but that doesn't mean that they don't reflect a real-world misogyny and how the stories play out, you know? It's it's still just fucking disgusting. Yeah, it's... I hate it. I hate it so much. It's terrible. Um, but anyway, we're on to since past part five. We're two-thirds oh, of the way through. 
Oh, God. And they're determining what they're going to do to try and, like, draw the twins out to have some agency in what's going forward. And essentially, Spider-Man calls a press conference. We spend five pages on Spider-Man deciding to call a press conference. And then the press conference in which he literally goes up and it's just like, Gabriel, Sarah, meet me at the place where I last saw your mother. The execution here is a lot of what we talked about with awkward padding for the trade of like there's whole there's like a whole free four page bit between news anchors like that's basically meant to be a comedy bit in the midst of all this that again just does not feel appropriate in this story that you know is effectively about the rape of a teenage girl even though the story isn't acknowledging that that's what it's about. We go to Spider-Man standing atop the bridge where Gwen died. Because he goes to the bridge! Because Boy, it's... Spider-Man bingo cards. Yeah, because it's not enough that we've been metaphorically going back and doing the flashbacks. We have to truly go back to the bridge to go back to the site of the trauma as if that's not what we've been doing this entire time, but we have to add an extra literal layer to it. This is the first thing in the Spider-Man drinking game is... He goes back to whichever bridge it is Gwen died on because it is inconsistent as to it's the text calls it the George Washington Bridge, but it's clearly drawn to be the Brooklyn Bridge. Maybe in the Marvel Universe, the Brooklyn Bridge is called the George Washington Bridge and the George Washington Bridge is called the Brooklyn Bridge. That's my new headcanon. But he goes back to the bridge and they show up and we have we have news anchors watching from below for whatever reason like they followed him from the press conference so we get some pages of them doesn't matter point is he's like um yeah no i'm not your dad that was norman osborne he gets them to confirm what they know or what they think they know i mean he's like that's all wrong norman was your dad we <laughs> gabriel was just like no no way he came he raised us he helped us you know, when he realized that not only were we growing extra fast, but, like, our minds were growing extra fast. He brought in teachers to help us. There's this panel of them, athle- of them athletic training, like, fucking Olympians. Like, these children with all these ropes and shit. And it's just, like, he trained us to sharpen everything about ourselves and mind and body. And... You know, he just conveniently arrived, and there's nothing creepy about him or what he did at all, even as he tells us about how we need to kill you, and then we'll be worthy of his legacy. Yeah, he comes and tells us bedtime stories about our deadbeat dad, we assume. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, which I guess, you know, not to not to sound like I'm actually blaming the kids for not understanding something was wrong, because obviously kids parents power dynamics whatever the fuck you know but anywho they just have the whole thing of in fairness the kids are only blank number of years old less than 10 yeah even though like it's the whole awkward aging thing of like how are we meant to read them mentally because it's like they certainly talk and it's like they seem somewhat like they're meant to be more intellectually mature than they are age-wise but not fully so what actually and it's not clear yeah it's just really inconsistent and not clear you know gabriel decides he wants to throw a murder temper tantrum but sarah actually sarah believes spider-man because he wasn't checking to see if he was their dad he was only checking to see if gwen was their mother when he was in the lab earlier and she noticed that and she's like 
Why would he check unless he knew for sure that he couldn't be our dad because he never fucked mum? Yeah, there's just... Couldn't be him. Has to be Norman's. The only, the only other option. I just... Continuing the whole Sarah's the more reasonable one, but Gabriel's not accepting it, refuses to accept that Norman, who's his parent figure, didn't love him. They start fighting, and essentially the point, and I'm using that term generously, of the awkwardly interspersed news reporter stuff earlier at the bridge was that they're going to end up alerting the cops who are going to show up, and they're just going to start shooting for whatever reason this day they're just going to shoot on site i mean it's the cops you could have had two panels of like just someone down on the bridge being like someone's fighting up there call the cops and then you can have the cops show up yeah efficiency in storytelling in this context but you got to fill out your six issues for your trade paperback so it's okay we understand yeah it's fine and and you are right realistically nothing ever actually needs a reason for why the police are shooting because that's what police do this cop looks but just so angry about these guys having their fight on the bridge yeah it's just like the awkwardness in terms of you know like superhero comic depictions of cops you know yeah they but were doing a positive cop depiction earlier in this book yeah anyway the cops start shooting up at the bridge Manage really effectively landed shots for how far away and the awkward angle of shooting up in the air. It's just because they've all just opened fire. Yeah, it's There's just... just like 10 guys down there just firing off like whole rounds. It's a manner of quantity. And Sarah gets hit and she's falling off. She falls off the bridge, guys! And we get the dramatic moments of Peter's always fought about... What if I could go back and save Gwen? And we just get the shots of her falling and resulting in a splash page of him catching her and she's alive and him going, I've got you, I've got you. And he's gotten to relive his Gwen falling moment of her identical daughter and he's saved her. Uh, she's not wearing her headband right now, so she's not identical, but... Um... Her very similar daughter, <laughs> the blonde, you know, conveniently again, at least having the mask off. So it's the full blonde face out. Has a a, a blonde woman falling off of a high place and Spider-Man catching them in a way that he didn't catch Gwen. Another one for your Spider-Man drinking game. Also woman getting knocked off a bridge. Another one for your Spider-Man drinking game. This is just, it's, the thing is, even by this point, this had happened so many fucking times that I cannot take it seriously on any level whatsoever. It's such a literal reiteration of the image and the concept that it just feels so expected and boring. And it's so, it's so, it's so obvious. Like, there's no art to it, no subtlety. The execution isn't even notably good it's just like you sure did the obvious thing and it was fucking boring and then he takes her to the hospital and is just like treat her now and meanwhile we cut back to gabriel is going to a secret hideout that the green goblin that norman told them about that they've been waiting to go to until they kill spider-man i guess and that he's going to now, I guess out of desperation. And he goes in and he sees these two tanks <laughs> with two Green Goblin-esque costumes. 
and he screams no and that's the end of the issue and one suit is like a green goblin with gray it's gray and blue instead of the green and purple so that's the gray goblin and that's like a masculine body when i say suits it's like they don't look like they would be on mannequins but they're drawn as if they're people just with the necks missing under the masks so it makes no fucking sense especially then of why if it's just clothes does the female goblin suit have boobs on it if it's just the cloth and no one's fucking wearing it so that you know but that one is for sarah because she's gonna be the girl goblin or the goblinette she doesn't get her own color scheme by the way she's green and purple so sarah is just like what if girl goblin and then and then gabriel gets to be the gray goblin even though gabriel is like sarah is a bad character gabriel is an even worse character they're just they're such flat characters who never exist as anything other than like you know plot devices for the angst and the drama and they fulfill like two different flat roles of sarah's the one who's gonna come around a bit but still gonna leave at the end and gabriel's the one who's every bit as flat and boring but also is extra annoying because he's the one that's gonna be screaming no you lied to me yeah and that's the cutoff to part five then going into part six finally the last issue of sins past nearly over guys nearly over we can do this um so norman has voice identification software set up for the kids if they ever make it into the hideout to start a little dvd where he explains oh yeah no i am your dad i killed your mother because she was weak and pathetic and an idiot and she would have not raised you right. And I'm like, Norman, you didn't... Okay, fine. Um, it's... <sighs> yeah. The faces, again, are just... I can't take this already not serious plot seriously. When Diodato's faces in this book, they just aren't good. Like, like Gabriel's, like, screaming and open mouth... Uh, Gabriel's screaming and, like, open mouth faces of shock and anger... I don't know how to describe what exactly. I guess it's partially the inconsistency of just, again, amounts of detail across faces. I can't take these fucking expressions seriously. Gabriel is hilarious. There's some, like, decent panels of Norman when he isn't being photo-referenced to Tommy Lee Jones, where it's like his eyes are in close-up or something like that. Like, he, he Diodato draws a good insane eye. But that's like the only like facial detail I've enjoyed in any of these six issues. But basically Norman's like, oh yeah, I'm your dad. And now that you've killed Spider-Man, it's time for you to, to wear your true faces, which is the goblin outfits. He's like, yeah, no, you're little gobbies. Meanwhile, Peter's waiting in the hospital and Mary Jane starts wearing, waiting with him. Um, he is, by the way, full Spider-Man outfit for all of these hospital scenes to try and I guess not give away his identity. They do the whole, hi, Spider-Man, hi, citizen, sort of awkward lead-in to why they're talking to each other to try and throw off suspicion. And then, like, before long, a doctor comes out, tells them how it's going. Basically, it's going poorly because there's something weird about her blood and her body's just not taking the blood we try to use, even if it's the same blood type, because her blood as the chain generation will say, is Osborne blood and special blood. 
uh, Norman did some chemicals once, and it fundamentally changed his DNA, so that now if he ever has kids, they're fucked. Except also other superhumans. This is getting ahead. Basically, Spider-Man's gonna give the blood for the transfusion, to which I go, did he ever get a transfusion from Norman, or is it just simply his superhero blood? is special in a way that specifically lines up with Norman's blood. Uh, so he he knows that he and Gwen had the same blood type because he had asked while they were planning on getting married one day. And I'm like, okay, you know what? I buy that. This is, this is a Gwen Spidey retcon. Blood type questions, I buy it. Okay. That's fine. That's fine. This is a retcon that makes sense with the previous material. I fully believe that at some point he was like, hey, let's go through a list of things because I just want to be unusually prepared today. It reads just like, for once in this story, JMS being like, now you might ask, but what about blood type? But I thought of that. I didn't think of the implications of anything else, but I thought of that. Um, so Peter does the transfusion, and so it isn't, it's, it's not that Peter's blood is special. It's that his blood is gonna kick Norman Osborn's blood's ass. As Mary Jane says, looking in the window, go get him, tiger, kick his ass. While we have just two panels of, like, Spider-Man's blood flowing into Sarah's veins. And then a panel of, like, Sarah in the midst of a web with Spidey on one side, Goblin on the other, facing off, representing the fight between these men over just their fight over her and over her blood and over her future. And over her sexy corpse. Yeah, yeah, this this positioning. It's like, you're correct, but also the number of things in this comic that are so wrong that I didn't even think about that looking at this panel, because it was just like, because you're correct, it's the, but it's there's the boobs, so much wrong. Boobs and butt, but also unconscious, is just such a look. It's all of those things, but it didn't even register of how much <laughs> is going on in this story. I didn't even think about it. But yeah, we have all this, and we're cutting back and forth to Gabriel again, and him talking, or rather, him listening to the recording of Norman being like, take more of this serum, it'll heal the aging problems and make you even more eccentric and powerful like me, and so what if it affects your mental processing and disrupts your functioning, be me, be my legacy, and be the goblin. Yeah, because like, the kids were like, aging rapidly because of the, because Osborne's DNA fucked them up. They're gonna, like, die of old age at, like, the ripe old age of, I don't know, I guess maybe double whatever they are now. Unspecified ages, thanks everyone. Um, but Norman's like, it may have unforeseen effects on your mental processing. Disruptions in normal functioning, paranoia, psychosis, even some memory loss. But it beats dying, right? And after all, what family doesn't have its little eccentricities? It's and a crazy eye panel. I think the crazy eye panel's good. Yeah, like, the, the drawing there is not bad. It's like, we get a lot of close-ups on, like, his mouth, his nose, his eyes. And these just make the difference in other facial drawing throughout the book even more apparent. Because, like, you know, I'm not saying every panel needs to be the same level of detail, because obviously it doesn't. But it just further heightens when I see bits like this. 
the degree to which other character drawing throughout the book is just bad. But anywho, we have just like cutting back and forth of Spider-Man next to Sarah mid-transfusion while Gabriel is giving himself his own transfusion of the glowing green serum vial and turning himself into the goblin as there's just the fight for the legacy of these kids as Peter is saving Sarah, but Norman has succeeded in getting Gabriel. Yeah, the, there's a panel from earlier repeated here where Gwen is saying, you'll never have them. You hear me? You'll never have them, Norman, during, like, the flashback stuff from before. Um, so, like, I he's got one of them. He's got one of them because Gabriel's just insane. That's his characterization is he's just the insane one. Yeah, like you said, there's that callback again to that specific panel because... In this story, JMS really is constantly being like, you get it? You get it? I can't I can't live with the idea that you wouldn't get it. You get it? I'm telling you again. This story feels like a story that should have happened while, like, Norman was dead, but it literally the plot depends on Norman having being alive. <laughs> like, it's all about Norman's legacy, and I'm like, he's over there! He's in Marvel books right now! This doesn't make any sense! But yeah, we have the War of the Blood. Peter comes to after the transfusion. Mary Jane's been looking out for him and making sure that no nurses try to snap a pic of him with his mask off. And No, they can just take a picture of mildly famous actor Mary Jane Watson Parker, who has been hanging around with Spider-Man all day. Literally all day. why. Yeah, pretending to be a groupie. Is this Spider-Man who was unmasked as being Peter Parker in front of the entirety of the Daily Bugle once X number of years ago? And they were like, oh no, it couldn't possibly be him because he, like, doesn't have powers. Sorry, it's just, it's just like, there's too many things. This is just, it's dumb that she's hanging out with him. Anyway, the Grey Goblin shows up. We get, like, the obligatory shot of him right outside the window right before he crashes through on his glider. And then, like, the splash page of him, like, tearing Peter out of bed to, like, fly off with him, Peter being weak from the blood transfusion. Um, and I guess he's fully brought into Osborne's bullshit because he's, like, screaming about, like, you'll try to taint her blood with your weakness. You ruined everything. He, yeah, it's... It's like, you may be able to tell that we don't sound infused about these pages. And beyond everything, you know, about just how the plot is bad, informatically it's bad, and we have no reason to be excited. Even just, there's nothing about the layout of this fight that makes me excited. And I don't even mean it in that, like, you look at the panels and you're like, this is so notably bad. But it's just like, everything building to this point is so offensive and unexciting. That we've reached the final act of this story, and it's like, please just be fucking over already. As we reach the pivotal point of Spidey and Grey Goblin and Sarah awake in her hospital gown with a gun on the roof of a building, having their final show-off of... Gabriel's just, like, trying to get Sarah to come with, and she's just like, no, and... He's just too deep in the Osborne Kool-Aid. And <laughs> is just like, if you've taken his side, then I'll have to take you down and just missiles and bullets and yada yada and the end line. 
being that she shoots his glider and somehow it knocks him halfway across the city into the water like they are not at the waterfront it doesn't look like it anyway until the panel where he is just falling into water now yeah it's like indeterminate how far he flew before crashing and also are you telling me that this grade a supervillain's equipment is so weak that it couldn't take a couple bullets on the heavily armored looking side from just a generic handgun i'm sorry this kid is supposed to be more powerful than norman was at his height because he goes down like a fucking chump it's it's just so unexciting and boring and just he just fucking goes down in some water and pete has a brief moment talking to sarah which is interspersed with more flashbacks to peter and gwen in which i think the main note it's like her being like i can't wait to see you again and when we're less busy i have so much to tell you and gwen goes it's funny there are times i feel as if i've known you for longer than i've known you you're that much a part of me and yet when i try to look ahead i can imagine you coming home from a hard day's work putting your head in my lap to sleep, but I can't see my face. Isn't that odd? And we're, I guess we're just meant to take this. The word's supposed to take meaning from this at all, of this just fucking obvious bullshit of like, you know, it makes sense because she's gonna die. It's, and then just like, he's having the flashback of kissing her and telling her he loves her. And he's coming to and saying, I'll always love you. But now MJ has shown up and says, I know. Sleep now. Maybe she can't see her face because it's a joke about how most comic book artists can only draw one female body type. It's... Which, um, in this book, you know, same. It's just, it's just hitting the, it's beating the shit out of that dead horse of like, didn't you know that it was tragic that she died in this story that's been referenced for 30 years because it's been his main source of trauma that she died. And then, of course, we cut at the very end to Gabriel... Washing up on a beach with no memory. Yeah. This this nice family finds him. And, yeah, like, his suit is shredded enough that he's, I guess, not immediately obviously a supervillain. There's a separate shot of, like, the torn-up mask against some rocks somewhere else. But they're just like, we're going to help you. It's okay. What's your name? And he doesn't remember. Both so we're kids just... just disappear off into, we don't have to deal with them right now, but they could come back at any time land. Yeah. I don't know if we already said, like, Peter tries to get Sarah to leave or tries to get Sarah to stay, but she's just like, I have to go. And effectively, like, both characters have gone their separate ways off panel so that they're both still alive to be used when a writer wants to do so later. But for now, we know why they're not doing anything. They're just gonna be gone for however long the narrative di- for however long the narrative dictates. Sarah's like, if I stayed, the entire plot of this book would have to be about you dealing with, like, all of my issues. So I'm just gonna go, and we can do a, a later arc that's possibly even worse than this. It was probably i need to reread it but it it was pretty bad it's pretty bad yeah and that's the very end of sin's past the last page is the one with gabriel on the beach and the story is over it shits all over 
the legacy of a character whose legacy was already just misogynist and built up on causing pain for a man to react to, and then just deepens that, introduces more characters who exist solely for that purpose, and then sweeps them right off the table to not be used right now, but to maybe be used later for more tired treading and beating of the dead horse. And basically just, we were subjected to all of this for nothing. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, in, in current Spider-Man continuity, thanks to Nick Spencer, this story might as well have really not happened, because the kids were just clones of Gwen Stacy and Harry Osborn, who were created by an evil demon computer AI version of Harry Osborn, who wanted to fuck with his dad, and everyone's memories of, like, in the case of Norman, having had sex with Gwen, and in the case of Mary Jane, finding out that Norman had sex with Gwen, were caused by Mysterio hypnotizing them, and it was all faked, and it was literally, it was all faked because evil demon computer AI Harry wanted to fuck with Peter and his dad. That's also a bad Spider-Man story. I just, don't do this. Don't do this weird retcon, like, like even when you're trying to fix a bad story, you're still gonna just make a new bad story. Don't sometimes, sometimes you just have to fucking ignore it and move on. Like, this is the sort of thing that would be virtually impossible to fucking fix because it's such just an intrinsic breaking of everything both literally and thematically it's just it's garbage i don't know if i have anything else to say about the story it's like in the first half there were parts where i was like the reputation had me think this might be worse than it ended up being because you know jms just has enough proficiency as a writer that even when he does such a horrendous story you know, we had things I was saying in the first half of like, well, I appreciate that MJ gets to be a major part of the story. But as we've said, everything about this is just so intrinsically sexist and horrible and just all for nothing. Just fucking horrendous. I don't know why this story exists, and I regret the fact that it does. Yeah. Do you have any final notes before we transition? <laughs> um... No, it's hot garbage, and yeah, I. and the thing is, the alternative premise where, like, the original pitch was that these were secretly Peter's kids, who were, I guess, I think the thing when Norman raised them is still going to be canon, although my guess is probably the version of that would be, like, Norman told them that he was their father, but they're actually Peter's kids, like it's the other way around. That's also bad. I guess it's less It's less bad, but it's still bad. I still don't know why you would do that. There's no reason for any version of this story to have happened. Like, the root is just secret pregnancy of the dead girlfriend to cause man pain. And then in the version we got, it's added. Also, retconned rape of the girlfriend. And then rape that we're not acknowledging as rape. Yeah. Thanks. Shall we never talk about this again? Um, well, we're done with since past. Now, and I, I, I just spent two hours of a podcast shitting on this story from start to end, except for I think two times I complimented very minor parts of it. We're moving on. Next week, 
We are also going to be discussing a critically panned and maligned story that is widely considered offensive. But like when we talked about its first half, we're here to tell you that it's actually fucking great and deserves a much better reputation. We are going to be returning to Rawhide Kid's slap lever with issues Free Foo 5. We are going to be finishing it up in our second half of our discussion about the iconic gay cowboy. So, yeah, listen to number one if you haven't already, and then we'll be finishing that up next week. So, thank you for listening, and yeehaw. Yeehaw! Oh, 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 oh.